Israel, the northern ten tribes, has already fallen. I'm doing some of this by way of review. Israel's already fallen. The ten tribes have been carried away into captivity. The few that remain were assimilated into Judah and Benjamin, and maybe a few scattered around uh, the, nor- the northern territory as well. But for the most part, the ten tribes were carried away. Descendants that for years would have no idea where they came from, carried into nations all over the world. Judah itself, as we talked about in previous uh, parts of this study, Judah had suffered significant losses in the towns and the villages that were all throughout Judah under the Assyrian attacks and the first two sieges of Babylon, which were uh, intended to subjugate and humiliate, uh, although they then eventually gave them back you know, the same type of life that Rome gave uh, to, uh, under Caesars. Hey, you can live your life as long as you pay tribute to us and, and don't buck the Babylonian rule. But Judah had been able to rebuild under being a vassal state, if you will, of Babylon. They had been able to rebuild, and for whatever reason, they were feeling unwarranted optimism of themselves. Maybe their idolatry. You know, their false gods will tell them anything they want to hear. And so it is in America too, huh? There's people that will tell your neighbors and your coworkers anything they want to hear. And there's people that were willing to tell the false prophets in Israel and the false prophets in Judah and the false prophets over in exile were willing to tell the people, hey, those bumps in the road, <laughs> those times when Assyria carried away 10 of our tribes, you know, all those uh, little things that happened to us, you know, some villages destroyed that we rebuilt, all in, the, all in the rearview mirror. It's smooth sailing. We'll never have a recession again. We'll never have another market collapse. Everything's going to be better. Our military will get stronger. Our king will get wiser. Our people will get brighter. Our children will go on to do bigger and better things. We'll eventually get Babylon off our back. Remember, this is why they were rejoicing when Jesus entered the city on the fall of a donkey. Same thing. As long as you're going to bring the fall, we're right and ready for it. But they, they thought that this would all happen anyway. Now, they had this unwarranted optimism. Primarily, they were feeling this, again, because they couldn't see themselves the way God saw them. They had a distorted view of who they were. They they were not aware of the many areas that they were violating uh, the word. They had a head knowledge of it. But it hadn't gone down. It wasn't sinking down. They weren't, a, they weren't under any kind of conviction. Therefore, they had no restraint to their prideful, idolatrous thought. See, the nation had not turned back to God in any way. They had not turned back to the Lord. They had not repented. There was no reason for their optimism. Instead, They were continuing on an unabated wickedness. That was what Judah was doing, unabated wickedness. Just like our own nation. How many times times have some people heard the gospel? Hundreds, right? I know before I came to Christ, I heard it a lot. I was in the had way too many chances category. How about you? So we can have mercy, but it doesn't stop the fact 
that God would be justified whenever he decides to act. Amen? That's the point. It's not, it doesn't mean that, that you and I deserve mercy, but our neighbor or our unsaved family member, that they don't deserve mercy. No. We didn't deserve mercy. They don't deserve mercy. Judah didn't deserve mercy. Israel didn't deserve mercy. It's God extends it, but at some point when he says enough, that's where it ends. When he says, as he says in verse 12, that I will spend my fury upon them, there's really nothing anyone can do to stop it, except if there was genuine repentance. But it would have to be quick, like Nineveh. It would have to be on the spot because God's time clock has wound down on Judah, as it did with Israel. Now, the military move that would come against Judah, what, uh, what Ezekiel is talking about here, and what he was talking about in the fourth and fifth chapter, uh, specifically against Jerusalem, but certainly the sixth chapter includes Jerusalem. So again, to understand when Babylon comes against Israel and they sweep down, they kind of come across Mesopotamia, and they come down through the north, uh, sweeping down, and then circling Jerusalem and the siege would begin, the military move that would come, again, this hasn't happened yet, this is the forecast. This is the 100, our weathermen are wrong all the time. When this forecast is given, it's a 100% count on it forecast. The forecast of the fall of Judah and the fall of Jerusalem will take place, but the military move against Judah and the siege of Jerusalem, it would begin not in the fall, I play on words, but in January of 588 B.C. And at that time, King Zedekiah, who would be the last king of Judah, he would foolishly rebel against Babylon's authority, and it would be his rebellion that would provoke the brutal attack that would end up wiping out what remained of Judah. And Zedekiah, his, his name was Matanias, but he was made king of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar in 597 B.C. at the age of 21. So Nebuchadnezzar appointed him to be the vassal king, the last king. He didn't know he'd be the last king, but Nebuchadnezzar appointed him to be the, the king in 597 B.C. Remember the, the attack, the final uh, one would take place in 588 B.C. But the Babylonian empire, uh, I'm sorry, the Babylonian emperor, uh, actually changed his name. This was typical of Babylonian stalled kings. When they would install a king, there'd be a name change. You might see that Daniel was given a Babylonian name too. So it was typical for the Babylonians to give new names to their Jewish subjugates. And a special throne name was selected. Now he actually got to, to participate in choosing the name, and he chose Zedekiah. And listen to what Zedekiah means. It means Jehovah is righteous. That's true. So if you're going to choose your name to be God is righteous, then you're going to have to live up to that name. Amen? Uh, or it means, how about this one? It means two things. The other meaning is justice of Jehovah. Someone should have counseled Zedekiah and said, all right, here's the deal. If you're going to choose a name, don't choose justice. Remember we talked about don't ask God for justice? Ask for what? Mercy. <laughs> but he chose the name Zedekiah, Jehovah's, Jehovah's righteous justice of Jehovah, either, either meaning is applicable. Uh, now, he wasn't as off the charts wicked as, say, Manassas, who was wicked to the core until he actually 
amazingly repented later in his life, but, but up until that time, he's as wicked a king as the world had ever seen. He wasn't as off the charts wicked as Manassas. Zedekiah, the best way you could describe him is he was tolerant of sin. He was just, you know, we live in an age today where we're told to be tolerant. Zedekiah was that guy. If it was popular, he was okay with it. Even though if he didn't himself participate, he was okay. Hey, whatever, whatever you want to do, if it feels good to you, you guys do it. You know? If the political establishment says, hey, this makes sense, okay. He could be easily bought, won over, very weak spineless leader that uh, was tolerant of sin. He, he, he had a name of Jehovah is righteous. He had a name of justice of Jehovah, but he didn't really in any way represent God in either of those two ways. He was completely tolerant, ambivalent towards evil, didn't really matter to him as long as he was enjoying himself. What other people did was their business. It was not his business as a king to ensure that Israel remained holy. And of course, his decision would destroy the whole people. When your leaders don't care about sin, be warned. God doesn't just judge the leader. He judges everyone that follows the leader. Whether the people said, we didn't know. We didn't know our leader was, was leading us straight. It will not matter in the court of the Lord. Now, two kings earlier, two kings earlier was Jehoiakim, who was his half-brother. So you've got to go back two kings. Two kings earlier was Jehoiakim, who was his half-brother. And uh, Jehoiakim had pledged allegiance to Babylon uh, to avoid destruction back in 605 B.C. Don't worry too much about the dates. I'm just making sure that you have them for accuracy's sake. But he had pledged allegiance to Babylon uh, a, a few years back in 605 B.C., when he was surrounded for that siege, and so, whoa, whoa, he said, all right, we give up, we give in, we'll be, a, we'll be loyal to Babylon, we'll pay tribute, you know, we'll, we'll be a good paying vassal state nation to Babylon, and he did avoid um, being, uh, the city being destroyed. But then he switched his allegiance, foolishly, to Egypt at a later date, and he stopped paying the tribute to Babylon. This is Jehoiakim. And so then in 599 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes back and invades Judah and lays siege to Jerusalem. And then in 598, one year later, B.C., Jehoiakim died during the siege. Okay, so you've got to go back two kings. He died during the siege. And then he was succeeded by his son, Jeconiah, in 597 B.C. And then Jeconiah ended up being taken captive to Babylon with his entire family and his entire household and around 3,000 others. And that was the captivity that Ezekiel was carried away in, that 3,000. Remember, so the, uh, the third siege hasn't taken place. You've got to go back to, and you can see what happened to the other kings before him. But for Zedekiah, when he cut, so then uh, after, Je, after Jeconiah is taken away as a captive to Babylon, Remember, Jehoiakim died under the first siege. The second siege, Jeconiah is taken away along with Ezekiel. That's how Ezekiel ends up in Babylon. And then uh, Zedekiah, uh, he will become the last and final king. And after a, after a little while, he, he thinks, I got this thing. 
I'm doing a good job. By me kind of uh, pacifying everybody, he could make every political party happy. He was that kind of guy. He was a, uh, everything, okay, hey, we want to put idols in the temple, which they did under his reign. We want to put more idols in the temple. Does that make y'all happy? Yes, it does. Well, then go for it. Will there be any consequences? Not that I'm aware of. The prophets were saying, there's going to be, you can't do that. You can't do that. Look at the things that our leaders say. That they act like there'll be no consequences for it. Oh, there'll be consequences. The higher your title and the more you speak on behalf of a nation, the more you speak either blessing or judgment upon that nation. But if what you say goes against the Lord, you're speaking judgment against your own nation. If what you say lines up with the Lord, you're calling people into relationship. And, and we certainly want to be blessed by the Lord. But Zedekiah... He did not realize whatsoever that the nation, spiritually, the strength had gone. Like all the blood being drained out of the body. There was nothing left but an empty shell. Anything could have blown it over, but they still looked good on the outside, right? Remember Jesus said this about the Pharisees, on the outside, you guys look great. On the inside, you're dead men's bones. And that was Israel. On the outside, they still looked good. The nation still looked, the neighborhoods had been rebuilt. They were looking nice. Jerusalem was doing well. Everything was fine. Everybody was worshiping their gods. Everybody was, you know, entertaining themselves, rising up to play. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But like Zedekiah, you know, Zedekiah reminds me a little bit of Samson too. The nation reminds me of Samson at this time, Judah. Samson did not realize his strength was gone. Just like the person who's had the six drinks does not realize they're not looking the way they looked at 6 o'clock at 1 a.m. Everything's changed, but they can't tell, even everybody else. Samson gets up, he does not know his hair is gone, and he doesn't know his strength's gone, but he thinks it'll be like every other time. And Zedekiah and all of Judah, they think, somehow they have in their head that they're going to see the kind of victories that David and Moses would see, but they won't. They'll see the kind of defeat that northern, the northern kingdom saw. They'll see the kind of defeat that had already happened twice before, but it'll be magnified far, far more. This is a great concern for our own nation, isn't it? At some point, all of our strength and all of our covering from God could very well just like ancient Judah, be taken away. But we'll probably believe, as a nation, I don't mean every individual, there's some of you, <laughs> you, you, Daniel says, the wise will understand. Many in our nation will actually believe we can't be harmed. We're the United States. We have the best military in the world. We have Silicon Valley. We have Wall Street. We have fields rolling with grain and corn and every combines rolling up and down Iowa and southern Illinois, and we've got all the stuff, and we've got more universities than anywhere. We've got more learning. We've got more education. We've got the Wall Street Journal. We've got really smart people. We've got nuclear power plants. We've got scientists. We've got technology. We have everything you could possibly want. In the book of Lamentations... 
it says this in Lamentations 4.12. It says, The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Even the nations looking on said, at some point back in the past, Jerusalem's going to last forever. Well, in a sense, they're right. <laughs> but in Bible times, things go dormant and come back, go dormant, come back, come dormant, come back. But it said the kings of the earth, in Lamentations 4.12, they would not have believed. But because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed blood in her midst, the blood is just. And it goes on to say in verse 17, it says, Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help, and our watching we watch for a nation that could save us. For a nation that could not save us, actually. They tracked our steps so that we could not walk out in our streets. Our end was near, our days were over, for our end had come. Judah would vainly believe this would go on indefinitely, perhaps forever. Our captive relatives over in Babylon, they'll be coming home soon, big party, everything's going to go great, and God says, mm-mm. And having powerful allies doesn't really help either, because Zedekiah tried this. He said, I'll do what didn't work before. Remember, it did not work before. I will align myself with Egypt. And he decided to stop paying tribute just like Jehoiakim had done, I'm going to stop paying tribute to Babylon. This is not even ancient history. This is just two kings earlier. And that didn't work well. But he does. His decision to seek the help of the Egyptians rather than any kind of repentance or rely on the Lord, uh, that never materializes in help in any way, shape, or form. I mean, there's no material help. There, there's, uh, they give them a little of assistance, but it doesn't do anything to stem when Babylon rolls in because God has already sharpened Babylon as his own sword. There's nothing Egypt can do, nothing Zedekiah can do. He's a slow learner because he had plenty of things that he could look back on and know that this was not the way to go. You know, all the previous setbacks, when before we were saved and uh, and even sometimes after we're saved, um, Satan tries to get us to remember the way it was. Everything was perfect. Everything wasn't perfect in the past. But you know, you'll have people remember, you know, this is how people go on and on and on uh, and sin because he'll, Satan will get, you know, have them ignore all the other things that their sin is doing to them because they can think of one fun night they had Saturday night. The rest of the week, they were as miserable as they possibly could have been. They're in debt up to their eyeballs. They've got this going on. They can't hold a job. They've got all these problems, everything happening. But they can remember one little thing, and they hold on to that. And Satan says, that's all I need you to hold on to, just that one little lie. It's kind of interesting because as Christians, we actually hold on to something too. And it's called Christ even when we have our tough times too. But our tough times isn't bound in uh, violating and going against God. Our tough times are holding on to the Lord because of Satan coming after us, not us going and joining and becoming like the pagan nations around them, which is what Israel did. They weren't suffering for the name of the Lord. They were 
following after all the gods, all the wickedness, all the adultery, all the fornication, all the things that God had removed from the land. When they came into the land, they had brought it all back in. Just like we talked about on Sunday when Jesus cleared the temple the first time. Three years later, what did he find? They brought it all right back in. And this is, the, this is the nature of our rebellious hearts. Whatever God says must go, we like to sneak it back in. God says you can't do that because when it comes back in, it takes deeper root. And it did. And Israel, and in this case Judah, was completely idolatrous. You can see what the Lord says uh, is going to happen. They had a high and lofty place in their own minds. You know, we don't have time to read it tonight, but over in Isaiah 9, uh, you know, it tells about when Israel decided to rebuild, that we will rebuild the, um, rebuild the walls that have fallen down. And, it, and Judah had done all that. They had rebuilt everything. They had rebuilt their high places. Their high places were not only idolatrous places, but it's symbolic of what they thought of themselves. They thought of themselves in a high place, untouchable places. We're up here. We can see all around. Uh, we have uh, the blessing of the gods, even though the gods couldn't help them in any way, but they were worshiping the very things that God had said not to worship, and on top of that, they're worshiping things that God created, carved images. We'll get into all this stuff as we go further into Ezekiel. The prophets throughout the Bible... Uh, when they speak about the idols, they tell us what the idol's value really is. They're, they're described, the prophets of God in the Old Testament describe, and it's just a sampling of some of the things that they refer to as idols. Useless, nothing, vanity, detestable, abominable, and even one of the renderings here that uh, Ezekiel used can be uh, translated as dung or just waste. The idols can't help anybody. I mean, if people really worship the dollar, the dollar is of no help in the day of destruction. Our dollar is not going to be of any help for a lot of reasons because it's vastly in debt. But the dollar can't help anyone. When you, when you, if you idolize your iPad, or you idolize your career, or you idolize your automobile, or you idolize your golf clubs, or your bass fishing boat, or whatever it is you idolize, when judgment would come, which of those things are going to be able to help you? The, that's what the prophets were saying. said, all those things are worthless. What if you idolize your own body? You know, you ever seen these people that spend all week, I mean, they, they're every week in hours to stay fitter than everyone else around them. And they love to take selfies of themselves and, you know, uh, QT tan and all this other stuff that they do. And they, they are in love with their own mirror, right? What happens if a famine comes? They're going to be the first to fall out. Isn't that amazing? They'll be the far, first to fall out because they actually, I have to eat six meals a day and all this other crazy. They're not used to it. It's hard to believe they'll be the weakest links in the chain. I may be exaggerating, but you get the point. But they, in some sense, they would be because they have built their idols so high, the higher something is, the faster the fall. And that's the point that the Lord's making. 
You go really high, it tips over really quick. You saw how the Twin Towers fell. They, the weight of them so high, what a fall. They trusted in their high position. They trusted in their own high and lofty thoughts of themselves. Leviticus 26, 9, God says, I will break the power of your pride. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. God can break it from every different direction. At the same time Babylon's coming, he sends famine. On top of it all, I mean, he just, he just hits it from all different directions because he owns the whole chessboard. Not just a couple of pieces. He owns the whole chessboard and actually owns both sides of the chess. And he decides every move that's going to be made, every move, every nation that will rise, every nation that will fall, it is true what comes up must comes down. Unless, here's the big unless, unless the Lord builds it up. That's a beautiful thing. 1 Peter 5, 6 tells you and I, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You know, if God wants to raise you to a higher level in your job, if God wants to raise up and give you great-grandchildren, if God wants to raise up this church to do things we've never imagined before and someday he may do it, that's up to him. We stay humble and let God exalt in due time. But when men decide to build mansions for themselves, both in ministry or in nations or in families or in careers, and lift themselves up and really take a high place and begin to really worship themselves, God says, you'll fall. The fall will come, and it'll be great. Psalm 127.1, you know it well. Unless the Lord builds the house... They labor in vain that build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, there's no shot. Not for a church, not for a nation. Oh, you might look good on the outside. Jesus said to the church of Sardis, you look fantastic. You're brimming with activity. Everyone thinks you're the most amazing church. And Jesus said, you're dead as can be. You're a corpse. Can you believe Jesus said that to seemingly one of the most successful churches in the Bible? Israel still thought of themselves as highly successful. They were doing great. They still thought, hey, we can negotiate big-time deals with Egypt. Egypt, you got our back? Yeah. We got your back? Good. Nebuchadnezzar, take a hike. Sword gets sharpened. Unless the Lord guards the city... The watchman stays awake in vain. Did you catch that? The watchman's not asleep. He's actually awake. The NSA, the SEALs, the, the ships on guard, everything is working correctly. It does not say, unless the watchman falls asleep, it says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This is a heightened, aware, on top of their game group. And it's all vanity. That should send a chill up the spine of anyone who trusts in the methods of man. Does not say that the watchman's asleep. He's wide awake. 24-hour surveillance. Submarines at the bottom of every ocean floor. Marketplace power. All the things. God can reduce it in a day. To our nation. To any nation. 
humility. But for you and I, John tells us in his epistle, little children, closes, First John, keep yourself from idols. We're all susceptible to go back to idols. What takes place here, though, is my final point on what Judah experiences. When the fall takes place, when, when Babylon comes in, their army rushes into Judah. They literally, you know what they will do when they slaughter the people? They will end up stacking the people like logs all around the idols as a mockery to the children of Israel, for the, to the people of Judah, as a mockery, and they lay them around their idols as sacrifice to their gods. And they'll leave their corpses there to rot in the sun. Literally, this is what they end up doing. They'll lay all the corpses, exactly what the Lord says. He says in verse 4, Then the, idols, the altar shall be desolate, your incense altar shall be broken down, I will cast down your slain men before your idols. You love the idols, you'll be offered to them as a sacrifice. And all your dwelling places, your cities will be laid waste, your high places, you know, cities that you thought wouldn't fall, cities that were beautiful, cities that were gorgeous, all broken down, all destroyed, all cut down. Look at the last part of verse 6, and your works will be abolished. All your effort. You worked all your life to achieve all this, Judah, and it's gone in a puff of smoke. Remember that when you're inviting people to Easter Sunday service. They don't know. Folks, they don't know. Christian, they don't know that their works will be abolished someday. And it won't matter what you've accomplished. It won't matter how much notoriety, power, or everything else you've achieved. Dispersed. Look at what takes place in verses 8 through 10. By the way, in verse 7 it says, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. We'll see that a couple more times. It's mentioned over 60 times in the book of Ezekiel. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. That's an amazing statement, but it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Atheists, Americans, people in church that don't have a relationship with God, some do not believe in God, some believe in God like, oh yeah, I believe in God, yeah, he's, he's benevolent, he's going to send us all to a great place someday. You know, they have all kinds of notions about God, and they carry around their wallet, all those dollar bills say, in God we trust. Very few people, percentage-wise, actually trust in God. Jesus said, broad is the road to destruction, narrow is the way to eternal life, and few there be that find it. It's not, most of the people do not trust in God. They know who God is. But God says here in verse 7, then they will know that I am the Lord. Lord, in other words, I'm over everything. They'll know it. It, before, I'm not quite sure I believe that. Um, I think these other gods are just as good. I think these other gods are more powerful. I think I can take care of myself. But what happens? Verse 8, Yet I will leave a remnant, so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered into the countries. And those of you who escape will remember me. Ah, the faded memory will start to come back. But it takes being carried away. Isn't it sad that it takes God having to take such drastic measures 
I pray he'd never have to take drastic measures with you and I. He doesn't want to. He desires us to continue to live in grace, walk in grace, feed on him daily. But they didn't. They had forgotten him. They, couldn't rem- they didn't know who God was. And remember, like, just like the person started at 6 o'clock doing great, they didn't know who they were either. They didn't know who God was. They didn't know who they were. God says, soon you'll know who you are, and you'll most definitely know who I am. You will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was... Listen to what God says here. Does this not blow you away? God, this is God speaking, not Ezekiel speaking. Because I was crushed by their adulterous heart. You think things don't break the heart of God? There are things that break... Not break the heart of God like ours, like God doesn't... God's not... He's not you know, devastated with a broken heart but things that grieve the Spirit of God in a way that, frankly, theologically, I can't really understand the concept. And I can't really even explain the concept. And if anyone tells you they can't explain the concept, they can't. Not to the extent that God, whatever He means by that, we won't really know until we meet Him face to face. God, you can ask Him yourself, what did you mean by you were crushed? Because you're crushed is not the same. When I'm crushed, it's a different thing than when God's crushed. But He says... I was crushed by their adulterous heart. Now, we can get an inkling of this. Some of your parents, you've had kids, and when they do things that are, you know, maybe, you know, you've seen uh, kids that say, I, I don't want you as my parent anymore. Or in some way, you feel like they've knifed you in the back, right? I've never had that happen yet. Some of you, I believe, have had that happen and you would know to an extent what God is saying here because he's like, hold on. All I've done is I nursed you. You would have died a painful death in Egypt. You were in slavery you could not get out of. And by the way, when they were in Egypt, they were worshiping false gods there. Joshua confirms that. He said, you need to finally put away the idols that your fathers worshiped on the other side of the river in Egypt. (coughs) So they were worshiping false gods even there, and he still brought them out. And so the Lord's like, just like you moms that might have carried a child for nine months, you got up in the middle of the night when they vomited all over you and they did all this other stuff and you took care of them and you, you know, took care of that first day of school, the nightmare experience that it was and all the different things. And after all that, this is what they have to say, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And God's like, come again? But the difference between mom and dad and God is God's holy. He's not just the parent. He doesn't cease to be God even though he does the parent role. The parent part of him says, I'll love you forever. The God part of me says, you're about to be judged. There's a di- See, God's not, he's multiple things and he never stops being all the other aspects of his character. Remember, the number one attribute of God is not love, it's holy. The angels say, in heaven, 24-7, holy, holy, holy. They don't say grace, grace, grace. They don't say love, love, love. They don't say mercy, mercy, mercy. They say holy, holy, holy. Now, God extends mercy and extends grace because of his great love. He is love as well. But God's heart is rent that Israel, we're talking, this isn't like he's given them a couple of years. We're talking hundreds of years to repent, and they won't. He's blessed them. Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. His holiness says, 
this must be accounted for. They've departed from me. By their eyes they play the harlot. They were married unto the Lord, but they broke the wedding vows and decided to marry other gods. God always compares idolatry and adultery. They're synonymous in the scriptures with one another, that both are forsaking the covenant, and like the covenant of marriage or the covenant of our relationship with God. Israel had a covenant relationship with the Lord. They broke the covenant and went after other gods, which, by the way, the other gods are none other than demons. God says, you want to worship fallen, wicked angels? Do you know what demons want to do to you? They want to take you to hell. I want to take you to heaven. And this is how Jesus had the same exact, the heart of Jesus and the heart of God, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, we see them side by side. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, remember what he says from the top of the Mount of Olives at some point, he looks down and he says, I mentioned on Sunday, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you, but you were not willing you did not want the relationship. You wanted to break the relationship. You wanted idols. You wanted yourself. You did not want me. And Jesus weeps over the city. God weeps, in a sense, at the heart level over Israel playing, or Judah playing the harlot. But he says, they will loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed. Well, that's when action starts to take place. When we begin to loathe our evil to the place that we put on sackcloth and ashes, although we don't do that in today's society, they did, but we should be putting on sackcloth and ashes in our heart when we realize that we have drifted, walked away, and pursued anything but the Lord, the heart of God. They'll loathe themselves. In verse 10, there it is again, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And I have not slayed, I have not, I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity. See, warning people of judgment to come is not that we can't stand our neighbors, not that we don't like our fellow Americans, not that we don't like our relatives. No, no, no. We gently, first and foremost, I want people to see the joy and a big smile and the peace of the Lord. But if I can have a conversation and I can explain to them, what do you, how do you suppose that what we're doing is working, you know? Zedekiah, if I was talking to him, Zedekiah, everything you're trying has failed with every evil king before you, every single time. Why would you think that you can kick against the goads, that you can fight against the Lord, and that when he says this will bring destruction and calamity, and you say, no, it won't. It'll work this time. Instead, why don't you come to the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. He's taken on all the sin, all the destruction. They'll come to loathe themselves. People have to know that what the Lord says is not in vain. What the Lord says is faithful and true. It's one of the names of Jesus. Faithful and true witness. Whatever he says we need to hear, whether we want to hear it or not, amen? Not everything we here we necessarily want to hear, but we need to hear. Tozer said this, he said, millions call themselves by his name. It is true. And pay some token homage to him, but a simple test will show how little he is really honored among them. Let the average man be put to the proof on the question of who or what is above, and his true position will be exposed. Let him be forced into making a choice between God and money. 
between God and men. Between God and personal ambition, God and self, God and human love, and God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However, the man may protest, the proof is in the choice he makes day after day throughout his life. He's right, isn't he? God will eventually say, no, no, no. I asked you to put me first. I asked you to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all these other things would be added unto you. But you said, I'll put you in fourth place, and I'll get to you if I have time. And then when calamity comes, a house built on sand will fall. An individual life will fall. A family will fall. A nation will fall. A church would fall if we were building on sand, but not if we build on the Lord. Final wrapping it up, verses 11. I'm not going to read every one of them. He says, to pound your fists and stamp your feet, alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel. Uh, we'll get into these abominations more in detail. I can't tackle them in every chapter because there's some chapters that are specifically dedicated to the abominations. This is just the fall is coming. This fall it will be coming. And beyond that, uh, those who are far off will die by pestilence. Again, many will die by famine in the outer areas of Judah. Uh, many will die by the sword in the villages that are near the city. They'll just be slaughtered. They'll just come in. Those cities are like you know, sitting ducks. Just come in, wipe them out, and then set up the siege mounds around Jerusalem. Starve Jerusalem out. Whoever survives will be killed by the sword, taken by captive. Most of them will die by both famine and pestilence inside the city, even eating each other, as the scriptures tell us. Uh, I wish I had time to go back into Deuteronomy tonight. And we could look more at Deuteronomy chapter 28, Deuteronomy 32, part of Leviticus. Every single thing, here's the thing. We'll look at in other chapters anyway. But everything in Deuteronomy that God warned of happens here. This is all, Moses told him. Moses, his final, his final teaching is, uh, I, I have to read just one piece of it, just because you'll, you'll be like, wow, uh, I don't know that I would want this to be my final uh, congregational message from our beloved leader, but you know, Moses um, stands up near the end uh, of his life, and uh, he says in chapter, there's, um, there's only 34 chapters in Deuteronomy, but in the 31st chapter, he says, for I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today I'm wet with you alive and you've been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? And he goes on to say, um, uh, that Israel will become fat, and they kicked, and they grew, and they grew obese, and they forsook the God who made, and, uh, made them and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. He says all this, uh, that everything that Judah ends up doing, Moses predicts they will do it all. Then Jeremiah, and Isaiah says it, and Jeremiah says it, then Ezekiel says it. All the prophets say, this is what you've done, this is what you'll do, and the final result, the nation itself, he says, I, verse 14, so I'll stretch out my hand against them and make their land desolate. Yes, more desolate than the wilderness of Diblah. Now, Diblah was um, over uh, towards Moab. Uh, basically, it's just a wilderness desert. Um, if you didn't have water and all you had to mat was a mat to sleep on, 
you would not want to sleep in a desolate desert because you got rattlesnake or you got different kinds of poisonous venomous snake, scorpions, scorching hot during the day, cold at night, and there's nothing to eat or drink. And he's like, the land, now you saw how, by the way, Ezekiel chapter 30, um, Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, when you see some of the land come back to flowing and rich. And when they got there, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was beautiful, lush. It's becoming that way again in the modern time because God is re-blessing the land, refilling the land, re-anointing the land for the coming of the final events. Of course, it's going to be attacked and, and greatly devastated one more time. Uh, it's hard to believe one land just gets, keeps getting mowed. It's like cutting, you're cutting your grass. Mow it down, it comes back up. Mow it down, it comes back up. But it became really desolate after this time because the cities are leveled. Jerusalem will sit and be in disrepair for all that time. Remember, Nehemiah will later weep. You know, my city sits in disrepair. The temple's destroyed. The walls are destroyed. And the city becomes a place of jackals. I mean, you actually will have wild beasts come back and forth and live in the area. Even today in Israel, they still have some wild animals, including some leopards in the mountains there. Uh, but all that stuff will come back uh, during the time. And so it would become a wilderness area. Uh, the kings of uh, their leaders wouldn't let the people settle certain areas, so it would become overrun, desolate again. Of course, the famine makes it more desolate. That just dries everything out. And this is what will happen. The land will become more desolate than the wilderness toward Dibla and all their dwelling places. And of course, that meant more to the, the Hebrew here at that time. They know exactly where the place he's talking about. That would be like me telling you, it'll be worse than the Mojave Desert, because that would make sense. As an American, you know where that Worse than Death Valley. If I give you a place that makes sense to you, that's what the Lord is doing. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. There it is, over 60 times in the book of Isaiah. You know, you and I, if we stop worshiping the Lord, we can become dry as a desert, can't we? Yeah, even Christians, we can become dry as a bone. But our response is always the same. It's always to turn back. It's always to do that 180. We have Passover week and resurrect to renew our commitment to Christ. Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Only the Lord can take a desert and make it a Garden of Eden overnight. He can take a Garden of Eden and make it a desert overnight. He's done both in the Bible. We could spend a whole study just looking at where He's done both of those. He's done them both. He's taken desert, brought them to life. He's taken places that were beautiful and brought them to desolation. Both, time, both he does. In you and I's case, we were deserts of desolation, unsaved, not fit for the kingdom, and on our way to hell. And he actually gave us streams of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, and our sins were blotted out. But even after salvation, Satan still works on us too. And desert zones creep in, don't they? Just desert zones. Maybe not an entire, but a desert zone is enough to really keep you up at night. A desert zone is enough to really take, and you're trying to irrigate in all the wrong ways. Just simply go back to the Lord. That's why I've loved Chuck Smith's study we've been going to, uh, just grace changing. Just go back, Lord, confess, say, I'm sorry. Cleanse me, refresh me, fill me. Don't live in self-condemnation. You're not the deserts of Babylon or Judah. 
You've been refreshed from the Lord. He, he will quicken your spirit tonight, not next week, not three weeks from now, three years from now. He wants to refresh now. That's why we can be renewed daily, according to Romans chapter 12, daily. So the deserts, the enemy wants us all to be a desert, wants nations to be deserts, wants families to be deserts, but the Lord desires that that not be the case. In Titus 3, 5, but according to his mercy, he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of his Holy Spirit. He wants to renew us. God has not destined us to be a desert like Judah, even though it was temporary. Eventually, God would restore even there. But we came out of the desert of the world into the promised land. Canaan was a picture of the Spirit-filled life. Flowing with milk and honey is a picture of the life and the Spirit. Not that your life is easy, but that the Holy Spirit refreshes your spirit. Because when bad things are going on on the outside, Jesus was the only one that's still able to sleep in the bottom of the boat. Why? Because he didn't worry about anything. He didn't have desert zones in his heart. Him and the Father were in perfect, refreshed harmony. Everyone else was freaking out, but not Jesus. 2 Corinthians, I'll close with this verse, 4.16. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. See, there's a lot we can learn from the ancient scriptures, but we have to look at them through the light of the new covenant. The new covenant is the flashlight on the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is the flashlight on the New Testament. And when we look at them both together, we get the full picture that the Lord for Israel what he's done and through Judah, he wants us to learn lessons from them which are important for us in walking in the Spirit. Amen?